Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And once again, we're joined by our special guest, Mike Mason. Hello. Isn't this some like a special episode or something? Or have I ruined the surprise? Is it? Apparently, yes, we have reached 200. 200 episodes, guys. 200. I know. It's more like 230 once we count all the specials and so on. But let's say 200. Yeah, don't spoil it, Scott. 200 years. Some people would be six foot under by now. And one would ask, why isn't this show? <laughs> but you keep reanimating it. We're running on essential salts here. With the essential salts. Yeah. <laughs> and for our theme for our 200th episode, we thought it would be a novel idea that nobody else has ever thought of <laughs> to ask people to send in questions. And, and you know what? We're going to answer them. Incredible, right? Like, so there are going to be questions. The questions going yeah. to put to us, and we'll come up with that. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sorry, I'm having trouble getting my head around that. Well, what's going to happen is special guest, Mr. Mike Mason, is going to ask the questions, Ooh. and then we're going to just ramble on like we do. It'll never catch on. You've asked me to ask the questions. I am going to be running it with some sense of order and authority. If you ramble too long, you will get buzzed. <laughs> I want a Jeremy Paxman kind of approach. Come on, come on. Come on, get on with it. You're mumbling, you're, you're going on and on. We're bored, move on. So don't be surprised if you're waffling. So if this show takes five minutes, it's Mike's fault. I'm sorry. Hesitation, deviation and repetition are pretty much our brand. You've had 200 episodes of practice. Now you should be getting it right, okay? <laughs> Simple as that. We really should be getting at least half good at this by now. So there goes my plan of just saying yes or no. Before we get into all this, there are a, a couple of news items. So, uh, Scott, there's something about Grizzly Peaks Radio. Once again, I've been recording with Andy Goodman and the Grizzly Peaks Radio crew, which is made up of a number of very talented podcasters. And we have been playing Call of Cthulhu again. And... After our previous adventures in one of these old white dwarf scenarios, The Watchers of Warbles Week, Andy's dug out another one, which was Marcus L. Rowland's The Surrey Enigma, which I'd heard of, but again, I'd never played. Again, it's a very old school Call of Cthulhu scenario, very a British sense of humour and sensibility, very much of its time. We're having an absolute blast with it. It's not necessarily the kind of thing you see published now, but a bunch of old farts like us going back has been just the right kind kind of bloody chaos and mike whilst we've got you as a channel to all things chaosium is there anything else coming up in 2021 that you want to uh, talk about now what can i tell you well first of all as it's the start of 2021 that should mean the gods uh, willing that the malleus monstrorum is now in print in uk and european warehouses it's already in australian and us warehouses but uh, what with that thing called COVID and whatnot, shipping was slightly kind of, you know, all over the shop. By the time you're hearing my dulcet tones, it should be already well into the UK warehouse and, and available for people in the UK and Europe to 
get print copies of. So that's one thing. The other thing that's due out at any moment is A Time to Harvest, which is the fully updated, revised public version of the original organised play campaign that we ran some years back now. And uh, that campaign has had all the kind of finessing from that effectively like a big play test we did as the uh, organised play thing and has been distilled into uh, book form. And that should be available as a PDF anytime now and followed with the print edition in uh, three or so months time. But there are plenty more things coming, but I, I can't talk about them at this point. I can't talk about Project X. I can't talk about <laughs> that setting that everyone wants to, you know, that old gum everyone likes. I can't talk about that. But keep listening. More will be revealed as the days go by. Any news on Project Y and Z? Project Y and Z, well, they're sat in a bit of limbo at the moment, but uh, they'll be coming, you know. All right. Allegedly, it's a completely different game. Something to do about watery London. I don't know what that is. It's taken up some people's time and stopped them writing for the one true game. <laughs> That's outrageous. I'm sure that'll all get sorted pretty soon. The Swamps of Islington or something it's called. Something like that, yeah. Your penny finally drops. I was wondering what the hell you were talking about for a minute. <laughs> okay, and now on to our main topic. Ask us whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd change it up. We keep to script. It's a strong title. Ask us whatever. I can see that being picked up by, um, you know, by mainstream media. A-U-W, that works. (laughs) So what we did was when we we were getting ready for this episode, we went out on social media, our different platforms on Discord, Twitter, Patreon, Facebook, and asked our listeners there to ask us anything. And they did. We got, I think, over 100 questions in the end, or way over 100 questions. So we've had to whittle those down a fair bit. And we have asked Mr. Mike Mason to be our question master, the voice of the people. And when that one person has finished writing those 100 questions, you found somebody else. (laughs) Luckily, we've got a few. So uh, it's all cooking with gas now. So here we go. All right. So I'm going to kick this off with the first question. Now, I suspect that some of you may have have looked at these questions in advance and maybe thought you have answers, which I think is disgusting and you should all be surprised by the question. (laughs) But anyway. Which is exactly what I've done. Matt, you can answer this one first. Your house is on fire. Mm -hmm. You've rescued the significant others and cats and birds and whatnot. And you've got time to pop back for three role-playing items only. What three items from your role-playing collection do you save from the fire? Depends whether you count a Temple Edition as one or two, because it's two books. I'm going to have to hurry you. You're on flames, Matt. You're in, you know, you're burning. Yeah. Come on, what the three? <laughs> but this probably would be me actually trying to think while I'm there. I'll go with the Temple Edition as a single item. The Cult Divinity Lost Demiurge Edition, because that's a unique one printing of it. And also, one of the gems of the collection I picked up years ago is the original Sandy Peterson's first draft of Call of Cthulhu that we've got. Good choices. Yeah, I wouldn't let that go. Excellent. Okay, Scott? Yeah, I'm kind of the other end of the scale from Matt. I sold off most of my gaming collection a while back, and I have very few physical gaming books. I'd save primarily my laptop, because I've got PDFs of pretty much all my gaming library on there. So without that, I'd be lost. Apart from that, I guess maybe my copy of the first edition of the Hot War Transmission, because that was the first role-playing thing that I ever wrote that went into print. 
and maybe my copy of Nameless Horrors, because that's the first thing that we wrote for Chaosium, and that has some sentimental value. Excellent. Okay, then, Mr. Fricker. Come on, three items. Okay, well, I think I would have to grab my softcover AD&D Monster Manual, because that's a, a well-thumbed, and uh, it's only just holding together, but it takes me back to the early days of D&D. And... Sorry, softcover? Yeah, softcover, yeah. I don't think I've ever seen a softcover Monster Manual. Well, that's why I would grab it out of the fire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I actually went to have a look on my shelves to be able to answer this question. I thought, what would I grab? And the things that stood out to me, because it's probably hold back the flames for a while while I was able to look around is Beyond the Mountains of Madness. So I'd, I'd <laughs> grab that and also, you know, that would keep me busy, give me plenty of reading material. And the other thing that, because I'm going to be without a home for a while, a bit of solo play, perhaps Tunnels and Trolls, little orange cardboard box set. I can stick that in my jacket as I run out of the house. There you are. I'm surprised they went all, every single one Call of Cthulhu books, but we'll talk about that later off air. <laughs> We'll buy those again, Mike. Well, that's fine then. Okay. <laughs> that's why I grabbed the rarest I've got. <laughs> Matt just went for the big ticket items. <laughs> Damn straight, the thousands I've invested in them. Hell yeah, I'm not letting them burn. Right, okay. So, Paul, what's your favourite food? Well, favourite food is something I discovered at a table with you, Mike. Is it the super hot chicken wings? Oh, fuck no. <laughs> They weren't even super hot. You were just like, we'll get the ones with hot sauce. And I was like, oh yeah, that's fine. And then all you guys started eating them. And I kind of looked around and thought, I'm just going to have to go through with this. I'm dying. <laughs> I freaking died. Matt wouldn't have been a problem at all. I know you, you would have chowed down on like the super hot one. But oh, yeah. anyway, no, it, it wasn't that. I think it was the launch of 7th Ed. There was like a backer's dinner at Gen Con in America. And I think this was our first trip, Mike, to yeah. St. Elmo's in oh, yeah. Indianapolis. And I'd had steak in Britain, right? And thought, never something I'd been particularly bothered by. And then I had it at St. Elmo's. I mean, I guess, you know, I was in some kind of transcendental state after the shrimp cocktail with the horseradish sauce, which <laughs> literally makes people cry. Is that cry through beauty or pain or both? Oh, both. It's an experience. <laughs> yeah. And paralysis, <laughs> tears, joy, relief, uh, relief seeing as well. light. Yeah, yeah. You know that bit at the end of Martyrs when she kind of crosses into the other world and see what's beyond life. That's what happens when you have a shrimp cocktail from St. Elmo's. Sorry, you just reminded me of this guy I met at a dinner party a while back who was telling me about his first sushi experience and he didn't know what wasabi was. And so he'd seen this big lump of green stuff on his plate and just thought that it was like a palate cleanser and basically yeah. picked up the whole thing and popped it in his mouth and swallowed it. And apparently they had to call an ambulance for him because he stopped breathing. <laughs> Yeah, it had a similar effect on Sandy Peterson. I remember he turned up, it just launched Cthulhu Wars. He turned up at the table, plonked down a, like a, a three-foot-tall plastic figure of Cthulhu. Yeah, it's in the board game. And then he got his shrimp cocktail and stuck one in his mouth and had to stop talking for several minutes. <laughs> he, he did he, indeed. Do you remember what type of steak you had, Paul? I think it, it was, was the, the prime. prime. Do, you remember, do you remember how yeah. much of the prime rib you ate? <laughs> <laughs> I remember giving quite a large piece of it to some homeless yes, person I think, uh, afterwards. Because they... <laughs> we didn't have a fridge. But it was like 
on uh, taste levels something that I'd never experienced before. And I thought, wow, food can be this good. Well, there you go. Uh, so, Scott, favourite food? My favourite food, if I had to pick one, would be something I haven't had for over 30 years, and that's Starbinlo, which is known in English as Mongolian hot pot. I guess it's kind of like a fondue almost, a northern Chinese equivalent of a fondue. So you've got this charcoal brazier with a pot of water in the middle of the table that boils away, and you have a bunch of different foods, vegetables and, and raw meat and so on, and these little metal cages on sticks or you know on handles and you basically load up the cage with whatever ingredients you want put it in the middle boil it and bring it out and it's served with this specially made sauce uh, this dipping sauce which is made up of things like sesame paste black vinegar soy sauce spring onions and all sorts of other wonderful things and you eat that throughout the meal, and then at the end, you've effectively made soup, this broth out of everything that's been boiled, and you put the remaining ingredients in there and then serve up the soup at the end. I mean, it's not just the fact that the dipping sauce is fantastic and the overall effect is delicious, but it's also the social aspect and the ritual aspect and so on that it is just a fantastic meal out, and I really want to do it again someday. I can see two observations about that. One is like a Cthulhu mythos version where like Cthulhu entities are like putting little people in the cages, <laughs> like you yes. end up in one of those cages <laughs> and you're getting dipped in the hot water. And the other is how much Matt would hate that. Yeah, it doesn't sound particularly appealing. So, Matt, if that's not your cup of tea, what is? Paul already beat me to the punch on St. Elmo's, so I'll go with other great dining experiences from Gen Con. Anything at Fogo de Chao. I love that place. And the fact we finally got to go back to one when we last went to Necronomicon made my year. Oh, For people that don't understand the reference, what sort of food is it at Fogo de Chao? It's a Brazilian steakhouse. Basically, I want to hear my food go... Mmm! And taste its last thoughts when it hits the plate. It's amazing. Tell us about the what's a bit like a beer mat that you get. All the waiters go around with those like tridents skewered with different cuts of meat. They'll circuit the whole room and they'll see you've got this mat next to your plate that's either red on one side or green on the other. Green is basically fill me up, and then red is give me a minute to digest this huge chunk of meat that I've just eaten. <laughs> <laughs> I love the fact that in this scenario, red isn't, I've had enough for this meal. It's just, give me a break. <laughs> yeah. It's, I'm dying. Please stop for a moment. The unusual thing about Fogo de Chao, in terms of obviously they serve a selection of fine meats, they also have a fantastic salad. So if you don't eat meat, oh, uh, yeah. the salad is more than enough. It's fantastic, the salad, I have to say. Yeah, when you call it a salad, that missells it, doesn't it? Undersells it, I should have said, yeah. Undersells it, because it is, yeah, it's just incredible. I load up a small mountain of that stuff before I even touch the meat. All right, well, I'm going to move things on away from food, and we're going to talk about media. Are there any plans for other Good Friends content, such as Good Friends videos? Martin has said that he liked Paul's rules explanations and... Scott's tour of the Necronomicon videos and wonders whether you're going to do any more video content or maybe maybe some live action uh, performance theatre would be my suggestion, but okay. I don't know if it counts, but I've been doing a bit of streaming with Enslaved Nobody and that stuff has been recorded so you can actually see my face during 
these things if you'd ever want to, and I can't think why you would. <laughs> but apart from that, not really, no. I think I have a face that is best suited to audio. All right. Okay, Matt? No idea. Might happen next. You've been doing loads of video stuff. But not with us. That's what I mean. The question was specifically, are we going to do anything? You both have run numerous times for other people's podcasts, but you've not actually run one under the name of your own podcast. Is there a particular reason for that? Or? I think we did think about like doing actual play mm. early on. That was banded around quite a lot, that idea. But it, it never happened. Mm. I think chances are it probably isn't going to happen now because there are so many actual play shows out there and some really good ones that matt and scott are both on yeah it would be hard to compete with that stuff i could see us maybe doing some more like videos thanks martin for the comments about the videos i did so i can see potentially doing some more of those you know about rules because like when you're doing mm. rules and so on it's, it's really there's not really anything better than a video actually explaining them and when it comes to rivers of london i can see doing some more videos about those rules as well well there's one thing that we did discuss that i don't know if we'll ever get around to which was sort of doing like an annotated actual play but i don't think that would suit itself to video i think there would probably be more audio that we do an actual play but then put in rules notes to explain to new keepers how we're using the rules what we're bringing in and you know basically use it as a teaching exercise yeah i can see this work on video you're all playing a game and then it all goes silent while you know you're all talking but you're all dubbed and at the side there's a little small picture of paul fricker dancing around and he's explaining the rules <laughs> So, the, you know, he starts talking at you. And I see, yeah. see, Scott has just made this roll. Uh, and he's made a massive mistake because he's rolled a fumble. And he doesn't know this, but he's about to die. <laughs> and then you disappear and then it rolls into, you know, Scott's rolling the fumble and, you know. I'm like that little animated paperclip. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I can see you want to make a sanity roll. Can I help? <laughs> <laughs> well, when you were talking about him dancing around at the bottom of the screen, I was thinking that he should be explaining the nuances of Call of Cthulhu through the medium of interpretive dance. See, we got there in the end i told mm. you i wanted to see some performance art <laughs> okay so is the white russian still the drink of choice for all of you it is i think the official drink of the podcast and we certainly when we meet up in person which hasn't happened for some time do have them occasionally as far as personal preferences are concerned no i mean i don't really drink them at home so what do you drink scott my favorite drinks are either red wine or pink gin Okay, Matt, what about you? No, it's still pretty much the default drink for me. If I'm giving my go-to at a bar, that'll be what I get. That's a white Russian, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Although, being the season, I've had plenty of snowballs, Moscow mules, and diving into other stuff, but that's that's always my favourite. Okay, and Paul? Yep, that and cider. Is it, well, one or the other is usually good, but, you know, homemade cider is the best. Can you not mix them together? I haven't actually tried mixing them together. Not, like, in one glass, anyway. A bubbly white Russian. With your homebrew skills, how about trying to next time ferment some milk and then use that as the basis for the White Russian? I'm sure nothing could go wrong with that. Mm. At the very least, you'll end up with some cheese. So. <laughs> mm. Paul, assuming that the world kind of veers back into some sense of normalcy in the next 24 months, this is December 2020 when I'm saying this, out of all the conventions that you could go to anywhere in the world... Which one is the one you probably are most looking forward to going to again, properly, not virtually? Yeah, there are so many great cons out there. I think mm. the ones that I enjoy the most are ones that have a duration to them. 
you know, I'm a long duration to them. It's kind of like the longer I'm there, the more I get into it. I love Necronomicon. And I hope that's going to take place in the autumn. But the other one that I really enjoy is Gen Con because I'm there for about a week and it's like being immersed in another world. And there's just masses of people that are all into it. And we go to loads of great places to get food and play some great games. Mainly about the food though, isn't it, Paul? Forget the games. It's mainly about the food. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's just do the food. Okay. So Matt, what about you? Any particular cons? Yeah, similarly, Necronomicon's very high on the top of my list. Again, because Providence is such a nice town, the food there's so good, and it's a stone's throw away from the Fogo de Show in Boston. But the one that's probably got a bit more of a special place in my heart is Contingency, a spiritual successor to Conception, because it's always around the time when our anniversary is, because that's where we went on our honeymoon with me and Tiff to Contingency. But as Paul said, it's got a long time. It's a week Monday to Sunday, and solid gaming, and I come out with it feeling like a zombie, and it's fantastic. <laughs> Marvellous. Uh, Scott, <laughs> any conventions that tickle your whistle? Well, I guess, unsurprisingly, Necronomicon. Uh, that would be top of my list. I've had an absolute blast the two times I've been there. And I guess one of the things I like about it, if this isn't heresy, is the fact that it's not just a gaming convention. I really like the literary track there and going to the various talks and meeting various writers it's just like a confluence of so many things that i absolutely love apart from that the other one would be continuum because well i've had a great time every time i've been there and it was also the first uk convention i ever went to so there's some sentimental aspect there as well and they picked the wrong year to go annual because <laughs> yes, it was every two years and then this year they decide to go annual and then it doesn't happen well there you are there you are okay this is a bit more of a uh, deep psychological question you need to uh, make a psychology role on this one okay. what is the most yeah. surprising thing you've learned about each of your co-hosts while recording one of your 200 episodes hmm. that's a really tough one actually you know i haven't got much of a psychology mm. skill to roll against <laughs> I'll go with Paul's music choice. In fact, actually, yes, there's one particular incident. Again, back in Meat Space, we were gathered to record around Paul's house, and Paul quoted lyrics from Rage Against the Machine, Wake Up, saying Hoover, he was a body remover, which just caught me as a curveball going, holy fuck, you like that stuff too? Hey! <laughs> <laughs> Marvellous. Scott, any deep insights you've gained? Not really, no. I guess I've known Paul for what must be 20 years now and matt for almost as long we knew each other for a long time before the podcast i think if we had just started the podcast together without knowing each other very well it would have been a different story but i think i knew matt and paul fairly well and i don't think there's much that's come out during the podcast that's really surprised me so i'm sorry if that's a boring answer but it's the only true one i can think of we're open books okay paul well, one of the things that surprised me about Matt, we had the bit in the show when we used to sing to our backers, how musical Matt was, mm. and that then it came out. So we've been doing this thing of singing to people like loads of times, and then it became apparent that Matt could actually hold a tune. And then after a while, he's like, oh yeah, and I did used to play in a band, like in a brass band, and he used to play, was it the trumpet, Matt? What was it you played? Cornet. So imagine a trumpet in a vice. Yeah, that was a surprise to me. That was kind of cool. And Scott, I mean, yeah, like you said, Scott, I've known you a bit longer. So I don't know if there were any great surprises, but I think the thing that has sort of struck me or come home to me is how good you are at 
interacting with the community you know like on, on social media and discord and so on and you know relating to the podcast at least I take my hat off to you on that front you've been really good on that yeah, yeah I, I, I can't really think of anything else you know unless we're going to talk about you know your extra limbs but <sighs> i think that's a secret yeah i think that's a topic for a show on its own isn't it yeah okay <laughs> yeah i mean yeah. that's why it's not a video podcast <laughs> yeah so some of you kind of alluded there to kind of like how long you've known each other and which kind of begs the question really which is funnily enough one of the questions you've been asked how did this show actually come to be so we were working on seventh edition and me scott and matt were working on the collection of scenarios that were going to be like the first published collection for seventh edition called nameless horrors so we were working on that and i think we all attending milton Keynes role-playing games club we all were quite close together and and certainly scott and matt and another friend of ours robin we'd experimented with another show and we'd recorded one or two episodes Mm -hmm. a year or two before but if a thing doesn't fly it doesn't fly so it's like that didn't take off and i had the idea that i think Miskatonic University podcast just started. Yog Radio was sort of over. And it seemed like there was an opening that I'd always wanted to sort of participate in some sort of show like this. And that just seemed like a good opportunity because I could see we'd got a ready audience being involved in 7th edition Call of Cthulhu. I could see there was a, a way of actually springboarding off of that to get it going. And also, you know, something that has really kept the show going, I think, is Patreon. And the level of support we've had through that has been a key factor in motivating and and sort of showing how positive feedback from the listeners. And I looked up, Patreon started in May 2013, which I think is about the same time that we began. Obviously, when they Mm. kicked off, we wouldn't have heard of them for at least a few months. So that kind of maybe coincides. Does does that sort of match with your memories, Matt and Scott? I've slept since then, and I can barely remember (laughs) what I had to eat last week. So, (laughs) hey. (laughs) (laughs) No, that does very much correspond with my memories of it i mean yeah like you say we'd had that earlier attempt which we'd recorded around at your place paul which was you me and robin Mm. yeah i think we recorded like you say two episodes of that i don't know it didn't quite gel the way the good friends did i don't think that was because the chemistry wasn't there or anything like that i i don't know i i think Certainly in my own case, it's because at that stage I hadn't really listened to many podcasts and I wasn't sure what I was doing. And by the time we came around to The Good Friends, there were more things that I could sort of hang some expectations on. And the other big influence that I think you you missed there, Paul, was The Sons of Cryos. Hmm. Which, I mean, certainly Paul and I both listened to religiously back when it was on the best part of 20 years ago. It was one of the first gaming podcasts. I don't think it was the first gaming podcast, but it was certainly one of the the first. And we used to listen to, was it Judd Carman and Jeff Lower? Yeah. We used to listen to that every episode. And I think that really sort of set our expectations of what a gaming podcast could be. And I don't think The Good Friends would exist without that. Yeah. I mean, obviously, podcasts have continued to proliferate. Do you think there can be too much of a good thing? There's too many podcasts these days. The choice is so wide and varied. 
Do you find it hard to uh, navigate through them or is that just not an issue? I don't think it's an issue. I think that the podcast market, if you can call it that, in gaming or just in general, has become a lot more Darwinian that it is a lot harder for a new podcast to get attention, get any kind of listenership just because of the competition. But I think if you've got a really good podcast, there's still the opportunity to find an audience. Even if you don't, even if you find a fairly small audience, as the majority of podcasts do, if you're having fun doing it and that's your main purpose for it, then that's that's fine. So, Matt, do you listen to many podcasts yourself? I listen to actual plays on YouTube, but I don't really think of them as podcasts because they're more video rather than purely audio only. Okay. And Paul? At the moment, what would the Smart Party do and the Grognard Files are the two things that I listen to all of their output. And MUP, still Miss Economic mm. University yeah. podcast, when they put a show out, I usually catch up with that. So there are certain shows that I keep up with. It's hard to keep on top of everything that comes out. Mm. If somebody recommends something and it appears to fit my interests, then I'll try and check it out. I think it's like any artist or creators. You put stuff out and you get some people listening and then it's a struggle to get an audience, but that's the same for everybody, I suppose. And like Scott said, if you're doing it and you're enjoying it and you're getting some feedback and some people enjoying it, then uh, then great. Well, I mean, with the good friends, it took us quite a long time to actually find much of an audience for the first three or four years. We had fairly low listening figures. It, it only really took off, what, like three or four years back. Right, I've got a couple of person-specific questions. So I'm just going to ask them to the person they're directed at. Paul, are you too busy with sex magic to game? <laughs> yes. Yes. Yes, I am. Yes. But I'm not a selfish man. You know, my door <laughs> is always open. If anybody wants to come and help with the ritual castings, then, you know be my guest in fact my door is open it's been opened right now by my good wife bringing me a cup of tea thank you dear if only she knew what you asked that was the most yeah. exquisite comic timing there <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't have planned that better god damn it this is what gets in the way of all the sexual uh, magic what tea you're just getting into the ritual then you, your wife comes in with a cup of tea <laughs> So, Paul, have you actually ever taken part in a real occult ritual? And I use occult in the broad sense here. Well, I have, but I take issue with <laughs> the use of real. <laughs> <laughs> Can you give me an idea of how, how long ago that was? Was that yesterday or we're talking days, hours or years? It was in the 1980s. When lots of things happened we don't talk about now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> What happened in the 80s stays in the 80s. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what can I say? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Can anybody else, uh, you know, anybody? I, I'm, I, I'm lost for words, really. Scott, have you ever taken part in a, uh, a real, and I still use the word real despite what Paul says, a cult ritual of any kind? Loads. I've pranced around standing stones while wearing robes in the dark. I have conducted rituals with magical orders in strange places. I have built my own altar at some stage and performed ritual magic at that. Yes, yes, I have. So, Matt, have you ever taken part in what might be termed as real occult ritual of some kind? 
No. <laughs> I think that's pretty straightforward on that one. Don't you know, sitting on the fence, Matt, doesn't help. I've got nothing to add. Never had the opportunity and that's it. Okay, fine. Well, next time you're at a convention, anyone looking for a, a 13th member or whatever, then Matt's your man. He's uh, ready to try anything, apparently. Matt. Derek Robinson says that you write great scenarios with lots of human interaction and drama and good horror too. Yet any time we hear you actually playing as a player, you just seem to blow stuff up with dynamite. Why is that? Damn right. (laughs) I get very different things out of whether I run a game or play a game. If I'm running a game, I want to run a game that is pretty much the players are the front and centre of that, and that type of story very much gives them the opportunity to role-play and gives them the time to shine. As a player, I just want to blow shit up. I'm the kind of guy who plays GTA and just runs over people in the street, doesn't give a fuck about the missions. I'd rather happily go do a drive-by and kill as many civilians as I can in the shortest amount of time. That's in the game, yeah? That's just in the game, though. No, I think Matt's flicked into real life there. (laughs) It is only 150 quid excess when I do anything bad with the company car. But anyway... um, (laughs) No, when I play, I I like to play for sheer enjoyment. If it's been an agent of chaos, then so be it. I just want to watch the world burn. Very good. So I'm going to kind of extrapolate that question so everyone else can answer it as well. What's your worst habit when running a game? Oh, that's a tricky one, isn't it? Mm. My worst habit is probably being underprepared and then getting really worried about it all. My worst habit is I'm just too prepared. I'm just too prepared. Yeah, that's my worst habit, being overprepared. Okay. Yeah. I would actually argue that being overprepared for a game is very often worse than being underprepared. Some of the worst gaming experiences I've had as a GM have been the ones where I've felt like I've had absolute control over everything in there and it's ended up being a bit too railroaded. But if I'm underprepared, then it tends to be much more free-flowing and I generally think it makes for a better game. My bad habit's been turned into a good one. I've turned that frown upside down. So, Scott, what's your worst habit, though, in running a game? My worst habit is probably, maybe it ties in with the improvisational thing, that I like to bring lots of conflict into the game. I like basically throwing problems at the players and leaving them to come up with solutions. And I think sometimes I probably do that too much. As Paul's mentioned before, my NPCs tend to be antagonistic, that everything goes wrong. And while I think that usually makes for interesting drama, I guess it sometimes can make it feel like no matter what, what do you do? Things are just going to go wrong. That's what everyday life's for. And Matt, any uh, bad habits you want to admit to? Yeah, part of mine is a failing of my memory, which doesn't help. My short-term memory is absolutely astonishingly bad. If I'm in the middle of a game, if especially if it's a not so much a one-shot, because that's a different kettle of fish, but if it's an, an ongoing game, and I think, oh, that's a good idea, and then I start to either lay down some narrative foreshadowing or make a note of thinking, oh, there's something that that PC's done that I can reincorporate later. Generally, I won't make a note of it because I'm trying to keep the game rolling, and then I forget Mm. about it. Then I think, shit, that would have been a really good time to bring in X, Y, and Z, and then just Mm. completely miss it. Mm. So, Matt, if you were made of jelly, what flavour would you be? If I was made of jelly. (laughs) Yeah, if... (laughs) (laughs) trust me i think there's plenty around here somewhere no i'd have to go with strawberry because that's my default flavor for anything anything like that strawberry okay scott meat flavored mike meat flavored jelly but you premise doesn't accept your answer scott because you cannot get meat flavored jelly please answer correctly what do you think aspic is you've been to poland 
Yeah, that stuff around in on the inside of a crust of a pork pie. Yeah, that's aspic. Yeah. That's a kind yeah, of like meat exactly. jelly. That's what Scott's made of. Oh, okay. All right. It's a kind of a flavorless, colorless <laughs> thing. I just... Uh, okay. Uh, Paul? Do you know, when you say that, jelly, I'm always sort of conscious as a, somebody who writes scenarios for an American audience as well <laughs> to say that it's jello. I kind of feel like a bit of a conflict because working on Rivers of London, Ben Aronovich doesn't seem to make any concessions to the audience mm. like that. He just writes it like an Englander in London. But anyway, my answer is pineapple. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's the king of foods on pizza oh. or, uh, you know, anything really. If nothing else, pineapple is the most macho of fruits because the enzymes in it act as digestive enzymes, which means as you're eating it, as you're digesting it, it's also digesting you. I thought you were going to say the most macho of fruit was durian because of the reaction that it gets out of people. (laughs) (laughs) If you had to create a truly outlandish setting for a Call of Cthulhu scenario, such as disco era New York complete with flared suits and roller skates, what would be the setting, time period, whatever, you would go for? I'm going to say the RPG circuit in the modern day. (laughs) (laughs) Throwing gamers into Call of Cthulhu, there's a wonderful level of meta there. Very good. Paul? It's not my original idea, but a 1970s setting, you know, like the one you said, really, 1970s, whether it's New York or London or whatever, I think it has to kind of be a city, you know, at the height of, let's say, sort of disco and, and all that sort of thing. And well, glam rock, disco, punk, you've got all those things sort of mixing up in the melting pot. And you could go to like the, you know, where that's really at the cutting edge in probably the end of one street in london or you know quite a few places in new york or equally you go out into the countryside and it's probably like going back several decades and uh <laughs> you know that's not relevant anymore but the one title i heard for that was on a forum and, and it was somebody else's idea but we know about the game cthulhu punk but this would be called cthulhu funk oh god yes you can't beat that can you i've always wanted to write that but cthulhu funk I would absolutely love to play a Parliament Funkadelic-themed Call of Cthulhu campaign, the, mm. the Mothership Connection, yeah. The first scenario is called Maggot Head. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're all called that. Scott, okay, so 70s is gone, so come up with something else. Well, I guess the setting that would appeal to me the most is the 1960s, sort of the the great counterculture period, particularly in American history and also around the world. When I was young, back in the 80s, I spent a lot of time reading books from that time. People like Hunter S. Thompson, Robert Anton Wilson, Tom Wolfe's The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, Storming Heaven, all these books that describe to what that era was like. All right, we don't need the big list. Come on, move on. <laughs> Look at how well-read I am. Come on, get on with it. He's a tough question master, is Mr. Mason. Yeah. He's worse than Jeremy Paxman. And, yeah, this, I, I don't know, it really kind of fascinated me about that period, about the promise that it held in terms of the politics of the time and the social changes and so on, but also in terms of the way that a lot of that went sour and failed. I think it's just a, a fascinating period of history. And I think, you know, particularly with the huge amount of psychedelic drugs that were around and the different occult practices and belief systems that people were playing with and so on, that it's one that is absolutely 
absolutely rife with just weirdness, weirdness that you can bring into your games. I've often thought about a 60s setting. In fact, I did run a 60s setting for my home group some years back. We came up with a name. It was called Cthulhu Now Man. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yeah, there you go. I mean, I agree with you, Scott, on that one and Paul as well. Yes, get writing is all I can say. That was our pitch, Mike. Get on with it. So, writer says I've got an idea. Great. Go write it. <laughs> the writing is the trivial bit. Once you've got the idea, that's all you need, Mike. That's all you need. Yeah. Many mm. people on the internet understand that completely. <laughs> so, starting with Paul, what's your proudest moment as a keeper? Two of you were present for it. I think it's probably when we finished running Gatsby in the Great Race for the first time at, um, was it Continuum or, or Battlemasters back in uh, 2004, I think. And Scott was a player and you were one of the fellow keepers, Mike. And obviously it was all written and prepared, but it hadn't really been play tested in the format that it was going to run. And there was a lot to it. And there was a lot of anxiety about how it was going to run. I mean, on a following time we ran it, one of the keepers was so nervous he threw up. (laughs) Because it was such a big thing, that was probably what I was proudest of. Yeah, and certainly was a... uh... A memorable experience and relived a few different times and every time it's played a little differently I have to say but uh, still thoroughly enjoyable. And I'm really pleased that people like Corey Welch and so on they're still out there running it today you know running Mm. it at conventions and it's still being kept alive which is great. Yeah definitely. Uh, So Scott nowhere near on that scale I don't know whether it counts as being a keeper. I think this was actually one of my Time and Tide games, which I ran using the Hot War system. Well, that doesn't count. (laughs) (laughs) Said keeper. I don't understand these other games. I've never heard of them. They don't exist. (laughs) The audience aren't going to know what's going on, are they, Mike? Just not going to be with it, Scott. (laughs) Making these games up. No no no, no one's ever heard of them. Go on, go on, seriously, go on. I think it was just setting up the characters in such a way that there were going to be betrayals and revelations and then just pushing over the dominoes one of the players in it was our friend Alina and she got really really into this uh, to the point where when one set of sort of betrayals and revelations came up she was literally so so shocked with the other players that she suddenly stood up very angrily and then literally just jumped up and down with frustration on the spot and then sat down quietly and carried on with the game and it was just such a perfect emotional reaction (laughs) (laughs) very good very good what about you matt yeah, I think there's there's only the one that stands out for me above all else, and that was at Concrete Cow, with actually Scott sat as an audience rather than a player, oh, here, yes. but just watching how the game unfolded. And it was a run-through of one of the scenarios I did for World War Cthulhu Cold War called Cadenza, set around a, a number station. There's very much a moral conflict in there that there is no bad guy. It's just that shit has unfolded and it's no one's fault. It's how do you deal with it? And there's a really easy get out that most groups go for, which is just, hey, this guy caused it, just sacrifice him and the problem's done. Whereas this group realised what was going on quite early on, thanks to some, again, wonderful bell curve rolling from our good friend Lin Yin, (laughs) chasing after a certain NPC and then going, oh crap, I shouldn't have done that, should I? But realising that there was this moral dilemma at the core of it, and most of the game was the group 
debating, can we actually do this to a poor innocent guy? And by the end of it, all the players just stood up and gave a huge round of applause. I thought, hell yeah, this this is definitely the best moment I've had so far as a keeper. But I don't think you can underplay how weird the dice were in Lynn's hands in that session, in that she either rolled criticals or fumbles. There wasn't anything in between. It was zero one or double zero, and that was it. Hmm. And it wasn't even just that. It was the fact that it was fumble, fumble, fumble. And then there was one roll where it would have been much better for her character if she'd failed it, and that's where she rolled a zero one. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's when she was able to catch up with said NPC. I won't give spoilers, but yeah. Uh, similarly, right at the very end of the campaign, or the game rather, she ripped a certain item from person's hand and basically put herself on the line and again rolled really damn low and went, oh, okay, yeah, you saved the day with a spectacular dice roll that should have failed. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of ironic that your proudest moment involves dice, Matt, knowing how much uh, you usually hate the, the outcomes of dice rolls. That was secondary to it, but it was literally just mm. the, the players suddenly realising that yeah, there was actually more to it than there was initially presented to them on the surface and that they really rolled mm. with that debate for most of the game. Yeah, it's good when the players like get so invested in it that they are actually debating among themselves what to do. And as a keeper, you sort of sit back and like put your hands up and they just mm-hmm. they just carry on. Mm-hmm. You talking about the round of applause and cheering there, I did have one moment like that in one of my games at Concrete Cow, but I can't take the credit for it really, which was, again, a World War Cthulhu game. At some point, someone had decided, yeah, in fact, it was our good friend Steve Ellis, had decided that he really, really wanted to pass a roll. And so he blew almost all of his luck on it. And he was down to two points of luck. In the climactic scene, basically they were doing silly things with high explosives during an air raid and there was lots of stuff that was just out of their hands. So I asked for a group luck roll. And of course, everyone at this stage turns around and looks at Steve, who's sitting there with two points of luck. And so he has to make this life or death luck roll and he rolls zero two. And the players just all immediately just jumped up and started cheering loud enough to drown the rest of the hall out. (laughs) Oh, nice. (laughs) Scott Dawood have you ever had a sleepless night due to a Call of Cthulhu gaming session and that doesn't include playing all night (laughs) yes I have but not necessarily for the reasons you might think as a player no as I think I've said on the podcast before a number of times I think it's very rare for someone to get scared during an RPG and personally it's happened to me I think once or twice but I don't get that scared But if I'm playing games, or particularly running games late at night, then switching my brain off afterwards is very tricky, and I do tend to lie awake for long hours afterwards just with my brain still racing, particularly if the game session hasn't gone well. And this has happened a few times when I've been doing stuff for actual play podcasts, where I've been sitting there afterwards thinking, oh, hang on, I got that bit wrong, or this bit didn't quite go in a way that I think is going to sound good on the podcast. This is going to have ramifications down the line. How do I deal with that? And very often I will just lie awake for hours and hours and hours afterwards, just trying to shut my brain off, but with all that stuff running through my head. I see. And Matt, sleepless nights? You don't sleep though, do you? I was going to say, given how sleep deprived I am most of the time, no, I can pretty much fall asleep at the drop of a hat at any point during the day or night. So no, it's never caused me any problems. Okay. (laughs) Paul. Yeah, you were up 
till four o'clock this morning running a game for Into the Darkness, though, right? Yeah, I think it was about half four when I finally rolled into bed, yeah. Right. Have I had a sleepless night? Not a sleepless night, but I have had my sleep disturbed. I can remember after playing, I played Realm of Shadows with Matt Knott a long time ago. There was me and one other player in the late 90s, and it was just the introduction to it. The main doctor invites us to investigate his wife and young daughter have gone missing. And it's all kind of quite mundane. There's no apparent mythos stuff going on. But it's seeded so mysteriously that I remember just waking up from a dream there were enough clues and, and stuff sort of going on that I was really trying to actually figure it out. Because usually in a Call of Cthulhu scenario, there are clues, but it just kind of logically leads on to the next thing. You're not actually trying to put it, but it, I was so intrigued with it all in my head that I remember waking up in the middle of the night and I've been dreaming about it. And then I just sort of lay there thinking about it. I'd like to go back and have another look at that scenario and just see what it was that kind of caught my imagination, see if I could put more of that into my own games. But mm. yeah, I think it was partly the fact that Clearly, we were playing Call of Cthulhu, right? But it wasn't obviously a mythos thing. It was just a missing persons thing. And it felt like I could figure something out about it. I really like that campaign. Mm. I then ran it and Matt was a player. And he came to me afterwards and said, it's pretty obvious what's going on. But I didn't want to spoil it for everyone else. And I said, well, what do you think was going on? And then he told me his thoughts. And I just nodded because he was totally wrong. <laughs> <That's> great. <laughs> I, I thought the artwork resembled a particular creature and I got, yeah, the creature was very, very, very wrong. <laughs> yeah. I think I can guess the answer to this one already, but I will ask Scott to start. Have you ever had a scenario concept that wound up being too dark to move forward with? <laughs> yes. Though perhaps not too dark, but certainly something that I went off because it hit the wrong notes for me, which was <laughs> towards the end of last year, I started thinking about a scenario idea that basically revolved around the anti-vax movement and a pandemic. I was putting together ideas for that. And then, you know, by the time we got to spring of this year, <laughs> I just looked at my notes for that and thought, fuck no. And yeah, that, that's never going to happen now. And that's why you're now known as Prophet Dorwood. <laughs> There's a guardian angel talking to you, clearly. I had a very similar experience where I was writing up certain things in the Malleus Monstrorum that deal with disease and, and so yeah. forth at the same time, probably around about the same time you were doing that, Scott, that uh, caused me to think quite carefully about how to, you know, what that actually meant and um, whether there is more ways to look at that and not just go with the disease and death option. But yeah, no, interesting. Matt, have you ever got so dark the lights all went out? Uh, yeah, and it's actually an idea I've still got bouncing around in my head trying to think of how I can make it playable. You have to have the right bunch of players there, but it's, it's a scenario idea that revolves around what could be considered lots of ist and phobe words that you could attach to it, where there's lots of potentially hate speech, racism, transphobia, mm. and deals with those kind of topics with the players or the player characters being on the receiving end of it, but then leading up to something yeah. that is specifically more life-affirming at the end of it, saying that this overcoming that is the main core of the kind of scenario theme. I think it would work probably better as a short story or in any other media, but I think as a game or as a scenario, it might be problematic. And that's why I've got it still bouncing around thinking, how do I make something like that playable? 
Yeah, that's the kind of thing that can backfire so badly. Yeah, that's my concern. Yeah, if you got the tone of it even slightly wrong. Personally, I'd handle that like radioactive waste. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, hence the concern. And Paul, what's been so bad, it actually was bad. <laughs> well, I think with Call of Cthulhu, yeah, when my kids were youngish, say 10, 11, we started playing some role-playing games. And... As the GM, you know, you can sort of take pretty much any scenario and kind of tailor it to your audience. So I, I don't think there's anything that's so bad you can't do it, but it's just a case of tailoring it to your audience. So I don't think I've had any any ideas for scenarios or so on that I've thought were particularly dark. I think it's more a case of what Matt said. It's when they touch on real world issues that might affect people. And I think mm. people have become much more aware of this over the last I don't know, I would say 10 years or so. Whereas prior to that, there was perhaps, there wasn't the same awareness of that. The sort of same sort of consciousness of, it sounds bad, but, you know, taking into account people's feelings. So I think it's not so much darkness. It's about thinking about how what you're running or what you're writing is going to affect people. And I think the key difference here is, like Matt said, with a short story, if it's in a short story or a film so we see these things in short stories and films and we think oh yeah we could put those in our games and mm-hmm. that film that we really like that deals with some really dark things you know why can't we have those in our games and i think the trouble comes up in that when you're watching a film you're just a passive observer but when you're playing a game you're asking people to actually step into those roles and experience yeah. those things that are happening to people or being perpetrated against people and we need to be conscious of that so i think that's where Sometimes you've got to draw the line or tone things down or put in some careful advice or think about how you frame those things. And I think there's an additional aspect to that as well. I'm sure this applies to the three of you as well, which is if I were to write a game or write a scenario that involved, say, racism or sexism, as a white bloke, I don't have the experiences of being on the receiving end of that to handle that material in a sensitive way. And so I'd be really worried that if I were then to put that in the game and run it for other people who had been on the receiving end of that all their life, then there's nothing good that could come of that. Mm -hmm. I think it's a thing to be mindful of and careful of, but there's many fiction authors who don't have a background in a certain topic they're writing in, in terms of attitudinally or culturally, that are able to do it. But again, they do it normally because they are able to reference and communicate and have input from people who have had those experiences that's part of their research and writing mm, i guess yes. so i think you know where the homework has been done and, and appropriate things have happened it doesn't you know it doesn't mean nobody can write these things but obviously sensitivity and um good research on things not to be short-circuited can i just turn that question on you then mike you're the person that if people have got scenarios for call of cthulhu you're the person that's going to receive those so obviously there are people who are going to write things which are inappropriate through the way they address i don't know gender or race or political views or whatever that you're going to have to kind of change or veto but what about dark scenarios do you get many that you would say are too dark that you can't publish no, I, in fact, I say I don't get enough. I get a lot of surface level stuff, which is great. Mm. Your sort of standard haunted house, if you want to say that kind of thing, which is I have no problem with and make some great scenarios out of. And there's a lot of fun to be had in that stuff. 
But, you know, I'd like to see a few more darker scenarios, if you were going to use the word darker in sort of tonally. It's a horror game at the end of the day, so having some horror in it is never a bad thing. The trouble is horror is so subjective, you know, what's scary to you isn't scary to somebody else. So having a, a diversity of voices certainly helps to have a range of things to uh, to explore in the game in terms of horror and mystery. I mean, that's really my angle is that I'm looking for things that are going to be interesting and fun to play. And sometimes it would be great to get some more slightly darker, I wouldn't say edgier, but I'd say darker tonally stuff would be quite interesting. Just out of interest, really, more than anything. Mm. But, you know, that's not, uh, you know, I don't want to shortchange all the other stuff that's written because that's all great too. But horror comes in many shapes and forms. Mm. And exploring some of those forms is interesting. And when I'm doing it every day, all day, Having a bit of variety in terms of what I'm editing, reading, writing just makes my job interesting. You know, Berlin, Berlin book covered a lot of adult or mature topics, which was fascinating. You know, there's a lot, a lot of the uh, book I already knew because I'd studied the Weimar Republic years ago. But there was still stuff there that I learned in, you know, developing that book and editing it. So, yeah, I'm constantly surprised and enthused by the stuff I'm sent but I'm up for more interesting things and a wider range of things is always on the cards so you never know what you're going to open when somebody gets in touch really mm. Paul if you can kick this off so Two-Headed Serpent was one of the best and most memorable campaigns I've ever run says Michalis Mandelaras I love the pulp story the NPCs and the locations do you see any future collaboration between two or three of you on that kind of scale perhaps something less ambitious or just something that will hit a similar mark i guess yeah i mean two-headed serpent that's one of the things that i've taken part in writing that i'm proudest of because it seems to be the thing that's got the most traction with people and the thing that we get the most feedback about you have people running it or commenting on it and there's a facebook thread all about it on um on facebook weirdly enough (laughs) yeah it seemed to be something that we three gelled on really well writing that maybe it was the pulp thing i don't know like i said earlier about the podcast if it flies it flies and i feel like that took off and had legs it took off and had legs i don't know wings and legs a snake with legs i hope maybe that there would be something else another project of that type okay scott any thoughts on that yeah i can only really echo what paul just said there's nothing i think definite in the pipeline at the moment but we certainly bounced ideas around and i mean there's a few things that we need to clear out of the way each of us in terms of workload before we can really get stuck in something else but certainly yeah i'd very much like to do you want to work with this pair again yeah see previous comments hell yeah i want another one (laughs) (laughs) okay okay this is your last question matt let's start with you what do you enjoy most about call of cthulhu I like, I think I've mentioned this before in previous episodes, that kind of what the fuck moment where it's been able to pull the rug of expectations out from under players and see their stunned reactions as they go, what the hell? And yeah, just being able to stun players like that. I think getting that reaction out of players makes my day. Cool. Scott? I think it's the fact that because it's been around for almost 40 years now and people have taken it in all sorts of different directions, there are all the different settings for it, Pop Cthulhu changed the game in really significant ways, that as a framework you can hang almost anything on it. So whatever kind of idea you want, whatever kind of horror you want to explore, even if it's just tangentially horror, then 
you can bring it to Call of Cthulhu and there's a very good chance you'll be able to make it work. So it's the versatility for me. Cool. Paul? Yeah, I mean, Scott nailed it with the word versatility. That was the first thing I thought of. I mean, if I wanted to play Dungeons & Dragons, then I'd use Dungeons & Dragons. But if I want to play something in ostensibly the real world, whether it's historic or whether it's modern day or even futuristic, usually I want to run something that's of the mode of anything from like straight out horror to a more kind of Philip K. Dick kind of weird fiction type story, then I would use Call of Cthulhu. And it's not just flexible because you can set it in different periods. To me, it's like every game is its own thing. Mm. You know, it's like Lovecraft's writing. It doesn't have a cohesive setting. It doesn't have to have the Miskatonic University. It doesn't have to have Cthulhu and Deep Ponds and stuff like that. Those things might not exist in this game, but it's still Call of Cthulhu. It's a, you know, every time it can kind of reinvent itself in the mode you want it to be, I think, and still feel somehow loosely whatever we want to call Lovecraftian. Very good. Okay, well, that's been your questions for your 200th show. I'm sure anyone else who's got a question will be encouraged to post your question on your various media forums, and I'm sure you'll all be happy to answer them going forwards. Always, always. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Elias. Thank you for listening. And this is the point of the show where we would normally thank our Patreon backers. We don't have anyone to thank this episode. We thanked everyone last time, so we could keep this one clear for something more general. As we have mentioned multiple times in this episode, this is our 200th episode. We have been doing this for seven and a half years at this stage. And I wanted to take this opportunity, and I I think the other two will probably join in and echo this, to thank everyone who has been with us on this long, weird journey from a small little enterprise that we recorded in Paul's shed on a fairly shitty microphone and... Over time, we've learned a bit more about what we're doing, but we're obviously still learning with every episode. And the feedback that we've had from our listeners over the years and the backers on Patreon who have funded the podcast and kept us going, this has been by far the best part of the podcast for me, just making these connections with all of you out there. And I just really wanted to say thank you very much to each and every one of you for listening to the podcast and for being part of this weird little community. Yeah, and right now I'm looking at the same Apple Mac desktop that we recorded that first episode on in the shed. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's still going. Yeah, it's like this has sort of become another thread in the spider's web of the role-playing game and Call of Cthulhu community, really. And yeah, I'm very pleased about that. Yeah, so this has very much become a part of my life now and very much where a lot of creative endeavour goes into. And I miss our mouldy stool. I love that little thing from back in from back in the shed. <laughs> if you really want Matt, I can put a mouldy stool in the post for you and send it to you now. Yeah. Just let me empty out the cat's litter tray and you'll be fine. <laughs>
Uh, but no, it's, it's been a really good time and long may continue. Hopefully we'll be having a similar reminiscence when we get to episode 300. Well, it just remains to uh, thank Mike Mason for joining us. Thank you very much, Mike. And thanks to Chaosium as well for all their support over the years. Until next time, it's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. A farewell from me. Oh! From me. Hello? Blasphemous Tomes.com. Mm-hmm.